Welcome, everybody, into the Valley. I am Ethan, joined by Stephen, and we are here to cover all things Game 1 and hopefully bring some uh, mental stability going into tonight's Game 2. We are into the Valley, part of Helio Hoops and the fans' first sports network. And Stephen, we had an interesting Game 1. So I'm uh, I'm not going to go ahead with any uh, flowery intros here. Let's go ahead and rip that bandit off. Suns drop game one, and it seems to many like the world is over, and it seems to a very select few that things are going to be all right. Now, I'm going to say it's our job today to figure out what side of that we need to be on. So I'm going to straight to you, man. First thoughts after game one. What's kind of going through your mind, especially now that you've had a, a, almost a full day to process? Well, my initial reaction was that the Suns had not the best process on offense. And we saw Tyron Lou come out and dictate things right away via the um, uh, intentional cross matches that I mentioned in our, um, in our uh, series preview, just kind of looking at putting Zubach on a non-shooter and putting a wing on um, on DeAndre Aiden to force actions that Aiden screens in to automatically become a switch. That sent a lot of the Suns' uh, pet plays, whether it's pick and roll or elbow or any of their um, screening actions with Aiden, that sent the pace of it completely off script. And that naturally kind of grew more profound over the course of the game and enabled for the game to be played for a majority of it on the terms and on the pace that the Clippers like. Yeah, it, it really did. And it's funny, man. I, I had just finished kind of re-listening to your son study with Steven podcast, which if you guys are listening and you haven't checked that out, be sure to do so that if anything, I think is a great example of not just a game one episode, but a series episode. So a lot of what you covered, I thought, will continue to be beneficial going throughout. So if you guys haven't checked that out, make sure to check it out. But I just, I kept focusing on the matchups, which you went into, you did a really good job, man. Uh, I don't think I've told you that after, after Edna, like did a great job detailing what we could see. And it's just, it really is, you know, it can be as simple as who do we want going against someone else? And it's not always just in this like black and white, 1v1 defense it's like no it's a who we have guarding you over in the corner is going to equal who you're guarding three moves from now and it really is a chess game in the half court sets and watching i think the clippers win game one in that area but also i think the suns winning parts in that first quarter but just not capitalizing on them and that's that after rewatching i I think you already put it out there. I think if you're looking for why the Suns lost that game, it's the first quarter. It's not a coach. It's not a player. It's a first quarter. If you're going to dig yourself a hole like that, you're having a lot being put on you. Um, I remember something you said a couple episodes ago. You know, In the NBA, it's just as easy to go on a 15-point run as it is to have the other team do it. So if you're going to give yourself that big of a hole, we watched the Suns put together that run to dig them out of the hole, but it's tough to expect that to continue because then you're thinking, okay, if they continue to extend this lead, do I really think the Suns are going to have a stretch where they outscore them 32 to four 
Like, no, that's insane. The Clippers are a good team. They got Kawhi Leonard. So it's taking advantage of when those runs happen. And the Suns were on the wrong side of it. Uh, let's start in the first quarter because it's an easy place to start. Hmm. I thought the Suns got a lot of looks that nine times out of ten they cash in on. You're looking at mid-range jumpers with switches they like, attacking the drop, putting Zubac in a spot he doesn't want to be. We just missed a lot of shots. So that the the Ethan eye test just says we had a lot of opportunities that any other game we capitalize on, they just weren't falling. What did you see in that first quarter that really kind of just set us behind the eight ball moving forward? Well, for me, it was, first of all, just the offensive process. Um, there was a lot, a whole lot of thinking going on on the offensive side. Like everybody had thought bubbles over their head for the entire first quarter. Uh, even Chris Paul, because of course he had the set in mind to exploit whatever advantage or whatever it is they were trying to create on any given possession. But just the fact that the manners in which they typically go about it with pace and um, with just how they operate about it, it just wasn't there because there was this big uh, cog that was in the way <laughs> with Kawhi Leonard on DeAndre Aiden. So I was like, okay, how are we going to go about getting into our elbow actions when they're switching it? But they're not just switching it. Something with the Clippers, when they do switch, they switch it aggressively. So sometimes you see players switching where they're just kind of passing the baton off to one, one to another. And then there's aggressive switches where guys are getting into the person that they're going to be switching to eventually. And there's like a passing off to where they're almost touching each other, coming together. Mm -hmm. The Clippers are experts at doing just that. That takes away the opportunity to create reaction advantages on the slip. Um, or, or even ghosting if they uh, if the pace with it isn't good enough. So the Clippers just did a great job using physicality and just truly dictating from scheme, um, like we mentioned with putting Kawhi Leonard on DeAndre Aiden, as well as um, just executing in terms of being physical and hitting first and playing with a better pace. And they just really put a stranglehold on the game early on. And for a team that can't keep up with the Suns and scoring on paper and in reality, the Suns have to do a much better job putting themselves in positions to take full advantage of that discrepancy in terms of uh, firepower on offense. But I do think on the defensive side, there were some things that the Suns needed to do better as well because they kind of started on that side kind of mm -hmm. in cruise control in a sense. Um, obviously, they picked it up after the first quarter, but again, the premise of everything starting too, too late. Exactly. You set a tone for the game. When you set that tone, it's hard to undo what you did and fully yeah. climb that mountain. You gave them confidence, and then they fed off of that. Yeah, giving Eric Gordon a 12-point first quarter. Correct. That killed me. I was like, right now, you need to have this game where it's Kawhi will get his 35, but we're not going to instill confidence in anyone else. And, and you know, Gordon didn't go on to have a 30-point game, but he had that confidence early to hit big shots late. And mm -hmm. that's that's where it's just what what was breaking down. Um, you know, if you're just looking at the scoring from the Clippers, Kawhi with 38, the next closest is Gordon at 19. And like I said, he had 12 in the first quarter. Like no one really from the very large and long uh, reserve unit that the Clippers have put together, a bunch of veteran guys, no one really killed you. No one shot phenomenally like out of their mind outside of and I think maybe you need to expect it, Kawhi Leonard hitting some just absurd shots. But again, it's Kawhi Leonard. You you got to know that going in. 
And I actually have a question for you on that. Oh, yeah, go for it. So were you surprised at all that Tory Craig had um, initially just single coverage on Kawhi in terms of on his isolation touches? 100%. I thought that that was a part of Monty's overthinking. mm -hmm. Thank you. So we've only been potting together for about three weeks now, and we are already in sync (laughs) because I do think that a lot of the things uh, pertaining to game one were a byproduct of Monty kind of overthinking things. Mm-hmm. You had a certain general uh, general level of flow with your lineups. Of course, there were some tweaks needed, but not drastic. And I feel like some of the things with the lineups as well as the schemes, he kind of overdid. Um, of course, there's no – you can't – you really poo-poo him too much for starting Tory because of, uh, like, just making sense. It does make sense. Yeah. However, the fact that he didn't have any reps with that starting lineup as a starter – Yep. And then you put them out there for game one versus them being used to playing with Josh Koji. Like, I think that some of the things we saw process-wise on offense was because of the Clippers, but it was also them trying to get used to playing with Torrey Craig in that spot instead of Josh Koji. And, you know, kind of you put two and two together, and that's a bad storm. Um, and then one last thing at the end of the first quarter, that lineup that Monty used with Devin Booker in the reserves, that was, I think, a minus um, – they were they the Clippers went on a 10 1 run with mm-hmm. that lineup at the end of the first. They only scored one point off of a free throw, obviously. That that that's the that's the type of overmanaging that can't happen because we saw that lineup as well at the end of the third at the end of the third quarter, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit too. But those minutes, it was like three and a half minutes of game time total where it was book out there with just reserves. And none of those reserves were even uh, TJ Warren or Terrence Ross to help with scoring on offense. Like those runs right there, you that's where you lose a game. And you can point at a lot of things, but those little windows right there are where you lose a playoff game for sure. Yeah. It's one of those things. And I'll I'll make this claim early in the episode. And I think you agree. You feel free to to disagree if you want. Like neither one of us are in the camp that this game was lost because of a, Monty Williams is the worst coach and needs to be fired, which we've seen on the internet. <laughs> or Tory Craig starting over Josh is the reason they lost. Like no. that is, let me be very careful to not insult someone who may be listening and enjoys our show. That is just some very uh, basic basketball analysis. That's there pushing was, an agenda. Maybe you said it. Uh, you <laughs> saw something that either benefited or encouraged the thought you already had, or you said things went wrong. What's the one thing I can identify changed? And you're like, well, Kobe's not in the starting lineup anymore. Look, I think starting Tory Craig, we both said it, makes sense. I think having him on an island against Kawhi does not make sense. I think expecting him to immediately be in the flow with the starting group, which we've also talked about, him as a starter is not him in his best role. I thought he did very well in a role that he should not have maybe been in. Uh, I mean, box score analysis here. I thought he did very well. I thought his defense, he did what he could. Like I don't think we can expect him to shut down Kawhi one on one. I don't think we can expect anybody anyone. <laughs> right? You can't expect anyone to. A uh, Kobe wouldn't have either. Right? Mm-hmm. Like Kevin Durant at times is still going to get beat by Kawhi one on one. Like mm-hmm. it just. 
I don't know. The way that we as Suns fans view Kevin Durant, I think more of us need to realize Kawhi Leonard is right there. So if you're thinking yes. Torrey Craig versus him or Josh Kogi versus him is going to get it done, you need to reconsider who we're talking about here. And so with that said, I think we are going to critique Monty on some decisions. I think we are going to critique the lineups, but that doesn't, that should not add fuel to the fire of dumb arguments and dumb agendas that are being pushed. Like mm-hmm. we're just trying to figure out what might've went wrong. So we can talk about what might go right tonight in game two. But at the same time, if we're here to just talk about how everything's good all the time, that's not very honest. And if we talk about how everything sucks all the time, that's not honest either. So quarter one sucked, mm-hmm. not the way you want to start a NBA championship finals run campaign quarter two comes around. It looks like the Suns maybe have righted the ship. They give up 29 points, which I wasn't thrilled with in the second quarter. It looked like they were kind of stabilizing defensively, but still hadn't quite locked in like we saw later in the game. But at least offensively, it started like they got their stuff figured out. What what stood out to you in that second quarter? Suns end up winning that quarter 36-29, a full 18 points better on the offensive end than quarter one. Was it just capitalizing on the shots they're already getting, or did you see something different that maybe led to that? So after the um after the first time out in the first quarter, the Clippers went away from the uh Kawhi Leonard on Zubach matchup. And they went back to more traditional with Zubash being on Aiton. And that allowed for the Suns to kind of generate some more flow on offense. And they kind of started getting going. Obviously, it was a lot later in the first quarter than they would have wanted to. Uh, and it kind of took some of that momentum after that aforementioned bench lineup that closed uh, minus nine against the Clippers in the first quarter. Uh, and they got Chris Paul and Kevin Durant back in. That allowed for them to stabilize things. Um, that lineup with uh, Terrence Ross, and Josh Koji with Bismack Biyombo, it was decent. We saw them getting into Durant initiating a lot more in the second quarter. Uh, it seems like more in the second quarter than he had at any point in those mm-hmm. eight games that he played in the regular season, which is something to uh, keep in mind because him, as I mentioned, as an initiator and being able to feed the front court pieces, not unlike Chris Paul can, having two players that can do it at that elite of a level, Allows for your offense just to have a different flow. So if Kevin Durant is in an initiation and he's getting two to the ball, now that's allowing for you to play in advantages, whether he's kicking it to the second side, hitting a roller, or hitting somebody on the strong side and just playing in flow off of that. So I think the second quarter just really saw them um, hitting on those notes on offense and then allowing for them to play with their defense set more consistently because they scored so many points. Yeah, I thought – I don't know what – led Monty to maybe overthinking it to the extent he did. There's a part of me that thinks campaign's absence played a bigger role in that than mm-hmm. people are talking about. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks are kind of having this, oh well, yeah, campaign's not out there that, you know, it's a bummer, but now let me talk about everything else. Things felt off from the very first sub, which is late first going into the second when Landry Shamit's first guy off the bench, and I immediately have to think to myself, are they going to have Landry facilitate? Are they going to have KD take over? Is it going to be a lot of point book? Like what, what should I expect? And part of me is like, if I'm feeling that way, there's a great chance they are too. 
So Kevin Durant as a facilitator in that second quarter was one of my bright spots for the game. That to me is something when you go back and watch the film and say, what can we do to exploit our, our opponent? I thought Durant with the ball in his hands more, which obviously it's such a simple and stupid thing to say is a good thing. Uh, We aren't (laughs) even going to jump into the fourth quarter quite yet with that point, but like having him be able to be the guy making the decisions is so good. Even if it's not him putting the ball through the hoop, Uh, he had a phenomenal game in terms of creating for others and facilitating. uh, And I thought, wow, that's something we need to look at a little harder in terms of saying, instead of KD doing this just because he kind of has to, how do we make this something that we, we create around him? We, we make this an intentional thing, especially in a game where I guess I'll go ahead and ask the question. What did you think of Chris Paul's game in, in game one? I like Chris Paul's game in game one. They, as we as we also mentioned in the preview, the Clippers hunt for a lot of mismatches and they try to put themselves in those qualitative um, matches, um, kind of hunting players out. And they put Chris in a lot of actions and he was mm-hmm. there with activity, with energy, and he was just saying no the whole game. He just said no. There was a couple of times he got the Kawhi Leonard switch. He was able to get a little bit of a deflection to muck up the pace with that. Uh, there were other times where he would be helping down on the block with DeAndre Aiden, who had his struggles with Zubac, whether that be to contest on a rebound or his, to just kind of send a double. His activity on the on the rebounding was phenomenal, mm-hmm. especially I mean mm-hmm. on the defensive side. You, there have been plenty of games where I've said it looks like Chris defensively on the shot goes up and he's kind of already thinking about what comes next. He was hustling under the rim putting an extra hip into someone doing a good mm-hmm. box out like i thought defensively he was great mm-hmm. uh, offensively i feel like and i guess the question comes from a thought that i i saw shared online a few times people were mentioning you know chris paul's role at his best this season which i think we agrees when his foot wasn't quite on the gas pedal was spot up shooter chris paul The ball doesn't have to be in his hand the whole time. He can be an option. And what we saw in game one was what I think we would expect to see out of Chris Paul. He's hunting his shot. He's trying to find that little corner. He's trying to get to his mid range and he's attacking the mismatches. I thought he did it really well. The shot just didn't fall. But if it's Chris Paul, I still want him taking those shots, especially early in the game. I do think, and we'll hit on this later. I don't think it needs to be option A or B in the fourth quarter anymore. But early in the game, I think that is a great look to get. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. falling for him. Yeah. And like kind of to this point that you're bringing up, which I definitely saw. uh, I was at work for a majority of yesterday, but I saw a lot of the... um, the itches that people were scratching in terms of waiting to have something to say uh, when things don't go as they would hope for it for it to go. Um, the biggest weapon that the Suns have is having multiple initiators of offense, but also they have the point guy on their team. When is Chris Paul going to be most optimal? Like, yes, at stretches this season, he's going to be. It's going to be better for him to not have the ball in his hands just because it's going to be Devin Booker or Kevin Durant with the ball in their hands, which obviously is a plus and a major plus. However, when we talk about the flow of the Suns offense being muddy 
them playing the game at the pace of the Clippers and all of these things that aren't necessarily where the Suns want to be. Maybe the best way to go about navigating those waters and organizing your offense is to have your master organizer organize the offense. <laughs> like, it's not like put the agendas aside and just assess the game on the court and see what the team is trying to do. They can't, their elbow sets and their, the, all of the different things that they like to run when Devin Booker is initiating or Kevin Durant is initiating, it doesn't have the same organization, flow, or pace to it. So you want your point guard to do that, and then he gets out the way. So you get the play initiated, and then he can get out the way. You don't just put him in the corner and stash him in the corner the whole time. Because honestly, sometimes teams are going to help off of Chris Paul if he's just sitting in the corner for 18 seconds on the shot clock. They're going to help off of him. And if he hasn't touched the ball the whole possession, you can't just expect him to be a catch-and-shoot guy to that extent. Like, obviously, he can do it, but you want to have some type of touching of the basketball as a threat. Like, this is one of the best point guards of all time. I don't get where this conversation that he doesn't need to touch the ball for seven, eight, ten possessions in a row in a clutch. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Why do you even have Chris Paul on the team at that point? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I agree. I, I thought everything he did, I would want to see him do in game two. Mm-hmm. Right? And that might just be a, a simple takeaway. I don't think you look at Chris Paul and say anything different. Aside from, and this is... This is where I struggle, and and this is jumping to the fourth quarter. When people are, are are talking or whatever, and you can even see with just the eye test, like Kevin Durant's not getting shots up in the fourth. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the responsibility of Monty Williams on the bench? Or do you think that's the responsibility of the guys on the court or Kevin Durant himself, right? Like, I I struggle, and maybe this is me thinking that those players are are – I don't even know if prideful is the right word, but just grown men doing what they think is best. In the NBA playoffs, I don't think Devin Booker, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, whoever, is waiting to hear Monty Williams say, hey guys, let's make sure KD gets the shot. That's just not how my brain thinks that playoff basketball in the NBA works, right? Like them saying, KD hasn't shot the ball in five minutes. What's Monty doing on offense? It's clutch time in the fourth quarter of an NBA playoffs game. Do you think Monty Williams is telling them who needs to shoot the ball? No, like, and Monty said I, as much as himself. Like, I will be taking my foot off the gas and focusing more on lineups and rotations than the on-court product because I have three of the best game managers yep. in the NBA on my roster. That's why you get those players. <laughs> it, yeah, I just – we. I think you said it before we hit record. It's the highest of the highs with every win, the lowest of the lows with every loss. And and that was, I guess, just come to expect it. But I I was happy, personally, <laughs> this is such a lame thing to say, I was pretty happy with myself post-game, where I was like, even with this being, in my opinion, a really bad loss, they were in it with a minute to go and only lost by five and Kawhi Leonard had a superstar performance. I'm mm-hmm. okay with that because if I'm playing the odds, that doesn't, that's not the result. Uh, and as we move to the third quarter, the third quarter, the Suns outscored the Clippers again. Yep. But even after a good second and a great third, they're tied going into the fourth. And that all goes back to the first. 
you had to do so much in two quarters to dig yourself out of the hole of the first. And that's where it's just, you know, every, it's not every quarter doesn't start zero, zero. It's you have to make up for the errors you made early on. And if you're asking me, what were the errors that put them in the hole? It wasn't rotations by itself. It was missed shots. People forget Kevin Durant's stat line in the first quarter because how it finished. He looked in his first quarter like home opener Kevin Durant. Mm -hmm. Cold, cold. Not checking his shoulder, getting contests from the back that I don't expect him to get blocked in the future. Trying to get one through the hoop to get that level of confidence. And it just took longer than I think he thought it would. And so take that and mix it with your point of maybe we're getting some matchups we didn't expect. The Kawhi on eight and things throwing off some of our normal sets. That's a lot happening at once for a team that probably did have a reasonable level of confidence going into the game. And so as the second quarter goes into the third quarter and the Suns continue to, to build momentum, the crowd seemed to get into it. It seemed like things were turning. Going into the fourth, did you think the Suns could or would pull away in this game? I think, I think the lead got up to seven. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Highest for them? So it did. It did. And then um, the elephant in the room in terms of the lineups used over the course of the game came back again. So that yep. same lineup Third that quarter. we mentioned at the end of the first quarter that really allowed for what was only like a seven-point lead or so to balloon to what it became at the end of the first quarter being 30-18. We saw that same lineup. This time, inversely, with the Suns having the lead come back to work against them and allow for the Clippers to narrow and eventually neutralize all of the hard work that the Suns did over the course of the third quarter. I mean, I think I think there was like a twelve or there was like a twelve to two or fifteen to two type of run that the Suns went on, and all of that was rooted, first of all, with the activity levels and engagement and attention to detail on the defensive side of the ball from this team. We saw. Chris Paul doing a great job navigating screens, being hunted again, and just just wrecking havoc in terms of just activity levels. In addition to that, we saw Kevin Durant with multiple deflections, deflections galore. Um, Devin Booker just just being so solid, man, so solid. And that carried in one thing, too, I thought, was actually that run continued. The Landry Shamit insertion happened during that run. Correct. Because he was active. He's always going to get crapped on. That's totally fine. People don't like he had the six most minutes. I thought he played really well. So good defensively. Defensively, he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that run continuing post that was getting some fast break points that we typically don't get, which Absolutely. came from deflections and steals at the top of the key that mm-hmm. led to run outs. And mm-hmm. Landry's phenomenal in those situations, made mm-hmm. himself available. But yeah, I thought I thought he was great. And that's what I in a dream world, if you switch Craig and Akogi's minutes, maybe everyone's okay and doesn't argue and would ignore that Landry Shamit played 24 minutes. But mm. I thought offensively, I also thought he did pretty well. Because I think the things that we and others have mentioned is sometimes it looks like his brain is trying to process two steps ahead, and in reality, he's like a step and a half behind. He didn't Mm -hmm. do anything 
that I can remember, and absolutely, I could have missed things. He didn't look to overcomplicate his role within the offense. He did he not. He made good, quick passes. He attacked and kicked out when he needed to. And defensively, I thought he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Just the the high activity and energy levels that we like from a guy like Josh or many guys on the Clippers, I thought Shamit was great. So I'm hoping maybe he doesn't play 24 minutes, but I'm still hoping that he has some run in Chris's spot because you can have KD or book initiating. You now have a guy who's more comfortable in the spot up shooting role, but defensively is going to bring a certain level of energy. You don't want Chris expending. So I thought it was good to see him come in and the wheels not fall off. But then to your point, we go back to the Booker and friends lineup Man. and the wheels just fall off again. Yep. And I think in that stretch in the third quarter, that lineup was like a minus five or a mm-hmm. minus seven, something like that. That ended up, like you mentioned, neutralizing the game going into the fourth quarter. Uh, I think you make a great point with Shamit being the person that's coming in for CP3 because when Chris Paul comes out of the game, as we, as we mentioned, at the end of the first quarter or like halfway through the first quarter right. and then like halfway through the third quarter, when it's Shamit that's coming in for CP3, Kevin Durant's still on the floor. So you still get the Devin Booker and Kevin Durant dynamic, but you get that, like you mentioned, with the Shamit who has the um, – he's the better guy in terms of being a threat in catch and shoot, but he's also doing it with movement. And mm-hmm. uh, the reason why Shamit plays and Monty has him as a crutch and people don't really want to see it because, again, they're scratching their itches and getting the genders off. Shamit, first of all, is solid defensively. His activity levels are never in question. He knows where to be, when to be there. He can't make up for size because of his stature, but he competes, and he knows where to be and when to be there. And at the foundation of a defensive player that's a team defender, that's all that you can ask for. That's how you get the trust of your coach. But also, in addition to being where you need to be and on schedule uh, defensively, he plays in .5 offensively. Mm-hmm. He's a quintessential .5 player in terms of role players. He's a moving player. His movement creates reaction advantages. He moves at a certain pace that allows for the Suns' half-court sets and actions to have a different speed to them, even if it is in the condensed court. And he's just a threat when he's moving. He's a moving target. He can shoot off a movement. He can shoot off the catch. He can uh, play with the ball in his hands. He can initiate pick and roll at times. And he can attack closeouts. Like, all of these boxes that he checks off in .5, he's literally that system's um, key player. It doesn't get that much better than him, especially on this son's roster. So, Shaman did his job. He just has a knockdown shots. And that's been an issue for him for quite some time now. Um even my, it might even be longer than um, I'm even thinking of in the, at the top of my head, but he just has to find some way to knock down shots because if he can give the Suns eight to ten points a game, especially off the shot quality of looks that he's getting, I mean, we're talking about a whole different game. I know, it, obviously, we're not being a um, Monday morning quarterback, as they call it, looking at it as a revisionist. You could say, oh, well, if he had eight points or if he had ten points – it's easy to say that, yes, but over the floor of the game, if Shem is able to knock down one or two threes, that really changes the flow of everything, especially looking at what's going on in those specific moments and applying that context. And talking about just threes in general, we only shot 19 of them. And that's the point that I wanted to get to later because the Suns definitely had in the um, the sum of the whole, 
the math problem was definitely uh, against them in terms of uh, from deep. Yeah. I mean, Landry shot one. Uh, Book shot uh, two or three. Oh, for three for Book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that number alone. You should be able to deduce something wasn't happening right on offense mm-hmm. because the system we run leads typically to a much higher volume than that. Um, mm-hmm. So let's let's get to the fourth, and then I'll kind of let you let you close with any other thoughts you've got going on here. The fourth quarter is going to be remembered by Russell Westbrook's defensive play on Devin Booker. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. erasing the memory of some phenomenal defensive plays by Devin Booker. Devin yep. Booker had one of his best defensive games of his career. Um, I wish it was attached to like a 40-point game as well. That would have been a lot of fun. Um, offensively, good game. Not a not anything you'd really remember. But defensively, he brought it with activity, with hustle plays. It's some of the best verticality I've seen out of him. Yes. Because he typically gets a little overeager under there. You're going to see him go for a block for a bit of a hip check on some of those and then complain about it, which he's very good at. He did such a good job of moving his feet, staying vertical, and forcing the ref to make the wrong call. And I think that was huge. I think it ended up benefiting him with the late game block that I actually thought there was a little bit of contact on, but immediately following two great plays under the rim, the refs aren't expecting a foul to be there. He was great. And I, I hate that that game was wasted. Uh, I'm hoping that it's a norm, but I thought on the defensive end, he, he was our standout closing that game. And then offensively, I'm I'm not quite sure what to think of the fourth quarter. A um, lot of folks have have brought up Kevin Durant's lack of involvement on the shooting end in the clutch when things really mattered. I guess just looking at the fourth quarter, where where did it go wrong to you? I think there's plenty of directions you could go, but when you look at this game, we're going into the fourth tide. What went wrong to keep the Suns from winning this one? Uh well. Honestly, this is just the we come back to the process of everything and just the thought bubbles that were going on over the players' heads <laughs> over the course of the game and stretches. Um, I felt like, uh, again, in the fourth quarter, there was just a lot of thinking. Mm-hmm. And in that thinking, we always want to make sure we credit why the team is thinking like that. It's because of what the opponent is doing, the impact that they have, the schemes that they're running. Um, so, again, another hat tip to Tyron Lewin and company, especially Kawhi Leonard, because he spent a lot of the second half guarding Kevin Durant, uh, which, newsflash, is so surprising. It was expected. <laughs> uh, and also, Russell Westbrook. I mean, Westbrook was out there switching. He guarded everybody. Every. And I mean everybody. And so we talked about Westbrook in the preview, and we talked about how just general discourse around his name as an athlete and as a basketball player is, is so wrong. Um, one thing that you have to account for, even if Westbrook goes, goes one for 50 in a the game, there's going to be a certain level of competing that if you don't match it, it's going to come back and hurt you. And that is why he's a winning basketball player. That's why he's able to get a team like OKC without Kevin Durant in the mix and really no secondary scores to the playoffs. His competition level is infectious. Even if he is a a, a, um, a secondary or tertiary player, 
uh, within the infrastructure of a team. And we saw that that type of leadership that he has through um, leading by example, it really bled into the rest of the Clippers. Because mm-hmm. now we're seeing Norman Powell play with a different type of motor. Now we're seeing Zubac win his win his minutes against um, against DeAndre Aiden, which is another um, that's an underlying story of the game that can't happen moving forward in the series. Um, and then we're seeing players like Kawhi Leonard be okay with kind of taking his foot off the gas and stretches while he's on the court because of how Westbrook is infusing everybody else with energy. We're seeing Eric Gordon get out there on defense mm-hmm. and play solid as well. Like, so I think in the fourth quarter, a lot of what we saw was the Suns doing a lot of thinking again, and then Russell Westbrook and his just activity level was just really putting a stamp on things. And that all being in addition to what Kawhi Leonard was doing in the fourth quarter, which was just being one of the best players in the NBA, especially in the in the in the playoffs. He's a top three player, a top four player when it comes to the playoff stage for a reason. Uh, he's been scoring and um, really doing it efficiently, uh, just as well as Kevin Durant has over the last like six or seven seasons. And it hasn't gotten the same type of shine and recognition because of the namesake. But um, yeah, Kawhi Leonard is one of those guys. If you didn't recognize that, and I hope you understand it now. And um, I do also think that. The Suns not playing Josh Koji is something that's gonna have to be addressed moving that's gonna, forward. It's gonna it's, change tonight. It's, it's it's got to. Whether that comes and we can kind of this can kind of go into another conversation that I wanted to bring up to you. Um, do you feel like a Koji should be reinserted into the starting lineup for Tory Craig? Uh, I, I do. This is this is unscripted. Uh, yeah, no, you're me. good. I, I was thinking about this a, lo- a lot, and I mean, we kind of went back and forth as the game first game started. Mm-hmm. I I would prefer Tory to be the fifth closer. That's where I'm at because when the game's on the line, I want Tory out there to help with Kawhi Leonard in whatever way that looks. I also trust him more having the shot in the corner as the shot clock winds down. So for those two things, I still think he's the best closer. But, and we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, putting Tory in the starting lineup disrupted everyone's norm. Mm-hmm. Tory Craig should be coming in with that, that group of four around Devin Booker. How different mm-hmm. does that look if Tory Craig's out there with him? Right? Like that is... That changes things. So put Josh in the starting lineup. Yes, he could get some rough switches to begin with. I think the energy from the tip will be valuable. He does have that Russell Westbrook light energy level that I think was missing to start the game. Yes, Like you want to see someone just hounding the other team on defense to get everyone. Yeah, like we didn't have any tone setters. Mm-hmm. in our group of five mm-hmm. like you've got three guys that are just like yep when it comes time to be ready i'll be ready because i'm a hall of famer more than likely uh deandre ayton who we still need to discuss at least to some level absolutely and tory craig who the thought bubbles i thought he mm-hmm. had a lot of figuring out to do and if you're put into the starting lineup because quote He's done well on Kawhi in the past. That's also a lot of pressure to put on one guy to do a task that's not possible. So although I think Tori played a phenomenal game, given the role he was asked to play, 
I think it's more important to get less production, but in the right role. So thank yes, you. That's perfectly said. Well, I well said. Yes. Less less points is fine with me if it keeps the flow and the rhythm going elsewhere. And when you look at the bench unit scoring a combined 10 points, you say, what happened? And the whole flow and rhythm of the team got disrupted. And that's where, again, like, X's and O's is Monty's decision to start Tory a bad one. No, I don't think so. No, it's if not If you're bad. looking at 5v5, what's going on on the court, it makes total sense. If I was playing 2K, I would do it, right? Like, it makes sense on paper but am i thinking well how does this affect the middle of the third uh you know sub rotations then you just got to be like well i don't know i think we can make up for it or i think the value here will allow the slip here and if devin and four can at least stabilize and yeah maybe you lose that by three or four points it's worth it we now have evidence to say it wasn't so I'm hoping to see that change get made. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I and I I ra- I would much rather put the blame on players because they're the ones that are addressing things directly on the court than a coach. But when a coach does make decisions to go with rotations that um don't have much game game reps together in terms of lineup continuity, like for example, if you look at the other side of the court with Tyron Lou. All of the lineups that he used, they were clicking, and they were clicking because those lineups have those player combinations have a requisite amount of game reps together in multiple different contexts. Whether that be with them in the lead, whether that be with them playing from behind, whether that be with Kawhi Leonard in a lineup, whether that be with him out and Paul George in, or vice versa, like those those lineups he was using had rev, uh, relevant game uh, game minutes spent together, and the lineups that the Suns used didn't. Like, in terms of chipping away at what is the difference between winning a playoff game and not, that lineup continuity is extremely important. And for that reason, in addition to the way that to optimize uh, Josh Koji's minutes is to insulate him with scoring. And the way to optimize the starting lineup is also to have that player that's going to set the tone, like we just mentioned. Like, I've, I've, I've talked about it since Koji entered the starting lineup. It was uh, prematurely initially, and then when Kevin Durant got there and he stayed in, I feel like it was a perfect fit because his energy, his activity, it sets a tone. Those first five minutes of the game where teams are exchanging jabs, if you can exchange jabs but do it with a certain level of activity, it's going to hit different. Westbrook's activity didn't punch until late. If you have Josh Koji in to start the game, and he's setting that tone with just flying around, getting deflections, taking charges, getting out in transition, getting early hit aheads for layups, setting screens, getting in the short roll, getting downhill, drawing one, and then making like a plus one passes connector. Like those are the little things that he does and toggles through consistently. Like you don't want to break that rhythm. And the team, more importantly, the, the core four is, um, is dubbed the core four. They're used to having a Koji doing that. So when you take that away, and then you also add to them experimenting with a new player in that rotation. And then you add to a foreign type of defense, an exotic type of defense in terms of cross matchups that's used from T. Lou. That makes for a perfect storm for a team to set a tone in your place, in front of your fans, and really kind of silence the crowd through that first quarter. So yeah. I think I like to answer my question directly. I think like I don't think that Monty will start Josh because he's more he's more to trust his guns in that sense and keep Tory there. 
I feel like um, Josh needs to start though. Yep. For that specific I, reason with the lineup continuity. And yep. then I think everything else, um, as far as um the reserves and having Tori in those spots and Monty going away from the the um the aforementioned lineups that kind of um hurt the Suns runs that they were going on. If he could kind of mitigate those two things in terms of adjustments, that's the big difference in the game. Outside of which I think is a good segue going into the DeAndre Aiden dynamic. <laughs> yeah, no, and uh I'll I'll embarrass myself here to uh whoever's sticking around 45 minutes in. I, we gotta we gotta bring this thing to a close in the next little bit because of uh apparently I have a job. Who knew? Uh, and I gotta gotta hop on hop on a call for that and not get fired. But um <laughs> whether it's looking to game two or talking DA, what are kind of your closing thoughts as we officially move on from game one? I've I've very strong feelings. Come playoff time when game two starts, we move past game one. What are you hoping to see tonight? Whether that is something different with DA, I think you've already mentioned some. I think we've definitely hit on the rotations that we would like to see changed. Uh, but what's what's one thing you're looking for tonight that hopefully will help turn things around? Well, not playing Josh Koji that much chips away at your offensive rebounding, which is one of the weapons that the Suns had this season at their disposal. They averaged 11 and a half offensive rebounds per game this season. They only had six. And they were out-rebounded on the offensive glass and on the glass in general by the Clippers. So them neutralizing that or making that the advantage that it was more consistently than it wasn't this season is important. Um, the math problem, the Suns have to get up more three-pointers. Like, they just have to, whether that's creating the spot-up the spot catch-and-shoot opportunities. Of course, it's tougher when there's, the Clippers are flattening out your actions with switching. But they have to do a better job with their offensive process, getting guys into those spots. Or if it's Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Chris Paul taking pull-ups off a of pick-and-roll. They just have to get up more three-pointers. Um, that's a math problem that they ran into against teams that play defense kind of like that. They ran into that issue with, against the Bucks multiple times in the regular season, too. And then the last thing is just – Doing a better job, again, with the rotations. It has to be a better job of how Monty is um, mixing and matching things after he deviates from the starting lineup. Those bench, those bench rotations with Book at the at the starting um at the as the only starter can't happen. He has to do a better job mixing and matching, guys. Yeah. My my two big ones are number one, and I think it's probably healthy we didn't go too far into this one. DeAndre mm-hmm. Aiden, rebound mm-hmm. the basketball. Gotta win this matchup. And shoot closer to the rim. I need him to have the highest field goal percentage on the team game too. I I hate seeing DeAndre Aiden 8 of 16. That frustrates me. And it makes me more annoyed when I look at the shot chart and see where those misses are coming. Because I think that's a mix of settling a lot of the times. You're yes. you're settling because you're open and instead you could be forcing the other team into making a harder decision getting more fouls, slowing the game to the free throw line, plenty of things. So Mm -hmm. don't settle, get the high percentage look, and rebound the basketball. That's number one. Number two, Kevin Durant needs to remember in the fourth quarter that he is still Kevin Durant. We saw it in the second quarter where you kind of just realized he's going to go down and shoot and it's probably going to go in and there's nothing they can do about it. I need that in the fourth. I don't know. I don't care if it's a, I don't want to overstep. I don't want to do whatever it's bookers. What? Nope. That's not in your head. I don't believe in it. Go down there and show us that you're Kevin Durant. We sold 
the farm to bring you in. We need that activity. We need that production. You are the best basketball player on the court. I would like you to show us all and remind us of that in clutch time when it's needed. So DA and KD, two very different players. Uh, One coming off a very good game. One coming off a game that probably got some warranted criticism. But I'm, I'm hoping to see more. I thought Book played a really good game. I thought Chris mm-hmm. Paul played a good game. They just didn't hit some of the shots they normally see. Mm-hmm. I thought Tory Craig excelled in terms of production, just wasn't where he needed to be. And I think Monty's got to do some, some hard thinking about, do I give this another run with just one game break? Do I make changes now? Was it too reactive? Was it just missed shots? I don't know. I'm glad that's his job and not mine. Mm-hmm. But, um, as we record this uh, early here on Tuesday morning, we'll get this thing posted in the next 30 minutes to an hour. If you're still listening with us, feel free to share it on Twitter. I know this one's got a shorter shelf life here going into to game two tonight. Hopefully when we talk again, Stephen, the Suns are tied one-to-one in the series and heading to L.A., man. You think man. You think we get it done tonight? I think they do. As long as they get Kevin Durant more mid-post touches and play off of those rotations, I think they will. That'll help the process yep. a whole lot. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Well, if you guys are listening, thank you again for spending some time with us. We asked if you would. Feel free to follow or subscribe on all of the many podcast platforms. Obviously, this this one is going to have a shorter shelf life, but if you're looking for some more Suns content, Steven's wonderful Sun Study with Steven is out on the feed as well. It's got some nice custom artwork. You'll see it there. Please take the time to enjoy that. We're all about getting a better understanding of the game and having opportunities to listen to that. I think you're going to help you. Um, so again, for Steven, I am Ethan. This is Into the Valley of Phoenix Suns podcast. We out. Peace.